another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the Crown on the application of coal and the Secretary of State for Justice, and the citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 40. The case before us this week relates to what happens to people when they leave prison. In many situations, former prisoners will have an ongoing relationship with a probation officer who will help the individual to adjust to life on the outside. In this case, the situation is quite different as the appellant, Col, was required to live at approved premises. And these are hostels that are designed for medium and high-risk offenders who have been released from prison on licence. Across the country, there are over a 100 approved premises, but there is a vast difference between the number that are available for men and the number that are available for women. In fact, there are only six of these halfway houses available for women in England and Wales, and this creates a huge geographical problem as, for example, there are none at all in London or Wales, which are rather big regions of the uh, UK. This presented a real problem for Cole, a female prisoner, who, at the time the case was brought, was due to move to approved premises far away from her family in London. In fact, she ended up living in approved premises in Bedford, which is 57 miles away from the capital. There is some justification for this lack of provision, as the vast majority of the prison population are male, and in fact female prisoners only make up about 5% of the total. Therefore, the number of these hostels is fairly proportional. Nevertheless, there is undeniably a clear practical impact, and so Cole brought a judicial review case on a number of grounds. Firstly, that she had suffered sex discrimination under the Equality Act 2010. Secondly, that her human rights had been breached as per Article 8, which is private and family life, and Article 14, discrimination, of the European Convention on Human Rights. Thirdly, that the Secretary of State had breached the public sector equality duty that exists under Section 49 of the Equality Act 2010. In the lower courts, it was decided that there had indeed been a breach of the public sector equality duty, and a declaration was made to that effect and accepted by the Secretary of State. Nevertheless, Cole failed in her discrimination claim, and that is why she appealed to the Supreme Court, where we pick up the case. The Supreme Court began by noting that although the approved premises are not directly provided by the Secretary of State, they are responsible for commissioning them. This means that under the Equality Act 2010, there is an obligation to refrain from doing, quote, anything that constitutes discrimination, harassment or victimisation. Furthermore, the situations of men and women who are required to live in approved premises are comparable because it is mandatory, the accommodation is always single sex, and most importantly here, there are no material differences in terms of accommodating the individuals close to their home and their family. The justices noted that although the number of approved premises for women is much less, simply because there are far fewer female prisoners overall, this is still a question of direct discrimination for the court. That fact is of great importance to this case as direct discrimination can only be justified in very limited circumstances that are set out in Schedule 3, Paragraph 26 of the Equality Act 2010. There are in fact three requirements that all must be met 
in order for the discrimination to be justified, and it is worth going through each of these in turn and seeing how the Supreme Court dealt with each point. In the first instance, a joint service for both sexes would have to be less effective if the sex discrimination is to be justified. The Supreme Court noted in response that within the context of approved premises, a joint service would indeed be less effective for some rather obvious reasons. Many of the men who are accommodated in these hostels are there because they have committed sexual offences, and so to allow them to live with women would be to expose those women to an unnecessary risk. The second requirement is that it is not reasonably practical to provide an identical service for both men and women, and again the justices agreed that this was met in the present case. To provide an equal number of approved premises for men and women would not be practical because, as we discussed earlier, there is a huge difference between the number of male and female prisoners. Having an equal number of hostels for both men and women would frankly be a huge waste of resources, and that is a legitimate consideration when coming to these decisions. The final requirement, that also had to be met in order for the discrimination to be justified, was the main sticking point in the case before the Supreme Court, as it requires that the limited provision for women be a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. The appellant Cole did concede that, given what has already been discussed, there is some justification for the varying provision offered for men and women. But the point that she made is that there has never really been any consideration of the needs for women to be placed near their families. As an example, there has never been any thought given to alternative forms of approved premises, such as smaller but more widely distributed accommodation across the country. Ultimately, the justices decided that it is up to the Secretary of State to show that the discrimination is justified, and in the light of the declared breach of the public sector equality duty, this has not yet been achieved. Therefore, Cole won her case, and this leaves things open for other female offenders to come forward and also bring a similar sex discrimination case. Overall, this is a good decision from the Supreme Court. It may be argued in some quarters that it is too political and uses the question of proportionality to impose arbitrary rules on the Secretary of State. But the truth is that this decision will hopefully force the Ministry of Justice to reconsider its approach to female prisoners who are out on licence. In fact, it would be good if the Ministry of Justice alongside the Home Office saw this as an opportunity to rethink the way that women prisoners are dealt with from the start of the process right through to their release. A pressure group called Women in Prison work hard on this subject and as well as campaigning for reform, they also produce a range of reports and provide some stark facts that will make you think about women prisoners in a different way. You can see these at www.womeninprison.org.uk but some of the standout facts are that 53% of female prisoners have endured some form of childhood abuse, 46% have attempted suicide at some point in their life, and the average distance from prison to home for women is 66 miles. It is not a coincidence that it is women who come from a less stable background and have socio-economic problems that are more likely to end up in prison. Women may only make up a small percentage of the total prison population, but that does not mean that they should be ignored or that things should be not be done to help them in relation to their unique issues. 
This starts at sentencing where the vast majority of women who are given a custodial sentence have committed a non-violent offence. This is not to say that there should be a blanket rule that should be applied in these circumstances, but both policymakers and judges should have consideration as to how prison affects both men and women who do jail time for such non-violent crimes. Spending time in prison makes it more likely that when a person gets out they will commit another crime, and it is often the case that those who have already done time for a non-violent offence will then go on to commit a violent offence in the future, and so the cycle of crime and prison continues. Moving beyond sentencing, and prisons themselves are also in desperate need of reform, especially for women. We've already discussed that there are no approved premises in London or Wales, but in fact Wales does not even have a prison for women, and this has a detrimental effect when friends and family are unable to visit. Prison is isolating enough as it is, but the social effect of not having face-to-face -face communication with loved ones can prove devastating and raises wider human rights questions about the right to family life. Where there are prisons for women, they are often simply adjoined to other institutions. So in Scotland, there is a male-only prison that has a female-only unit attached to it. In a similar vein, Northern Ireland has a women's unit that is located within a men-only young offenders institution. Even when women get out of prison, they're provided with very little support, as has been highlighted in this case. More widely, around one-third of women lose their home while they are inside, and 38% do not have accommodation sorted when they do eventually get out of the system. Again, this is an obvious point, but the effects are devastating. Women can end up on the streets and are unsurprisingly likely to turn to crime to simply support themselves after leaving prison. I could go on, but there are other issues that could be addressed, such as those who have alcohol or drug problems, which is particularly prevalent, or women who have children but are subject to custodial sentences, which again has a devastating effect on family life. Frankly, there isn't enough time to go through the root and branch problems that exist within our prison system in one podcast episode, but this should give you the idea that this particular case is only the tip of the iceberg and that there has to be serious reforms to the way that women in prison are dealt with from start to finish. Human rights and equality legislation do present an opportunity to challenge some of the most egregious aspects of prison life, but even this requires people like Ms Cole to bring a case in the first place. The truth is that prisoners in this country, both male and female, do not properly have a voice, and so the policy debate exists on an emotional spectrum, where the tendency is to be hard on crime without any consideration to the wider issues that contribute to criminal behaviour and recidivism. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast there. That really helps other people to discover it. And also check out the website as well at uklawweekly.com. Our theme music comes from bensound.com and make sure to tune in next week where we'll have another episode for you. I'll speak to you then, but in the meantime, bye!